I decided to play um, a piece from Norma. This aria uh, it speaks uh, about trust. The singer will sing. Now, just you will have just uh, the, the introduction, but uh, the the music, uh, the melody, it's quite the same. So I just put. The piece you just heard was from a rather strange event, but perhaps a typical event of these times. A virtual dinner party with about 25 people gathering from maybe 10 countries, from Portugal to India to the USA, to eat together through their screens. There's something about the fragility of her playing and even of the soundtrack in the background which I think makes it even more beautiful than perhaps hearing it in full in an opera house. It seems to sort of trigger, to, to resonate with the fragility of this crisis which has caused us all to be here. So I got interested in wisdom mainly because of the visible absences of it, whether in leadership or uh, in the internet and the digital world and all the people working on AI didn't seem to have any idea of wisdom. And there is a kind of standard answer which you get, which is very um, ancient and in some ways very valid about detachment, about lack of impulse, about uh, engagement with nature, about taking the long view. I tried sort of breaking it down then into different elements. I think there is there is one part of it which is in some ways quite a narrow notion of cleverness, how you can actually cope with complex uh, issues and grasp their complexity. There's an element which is about knowledge, which is actually rather undervalued often in the old wisdom literatures, but it's pretty important if you're trying to deal with a pandemic or climate change. You know, these, these involve deep bodies of, uh, of knowledge. It is partly as well about obviously ethics and indeed everything we we value as wise is able to look at it in the through the lens of right and wrong but also sometimes knowing the limits of of ethics too and then i look at some of the 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 other dimensions of wisdom such as what i'd call presence the willingness to be part of a problem not just standing outside it and looking on it and that's very interesting because also non-attachment and detachment is is also uh, part of wisdom. There is, of course, a great sort of spiritual tradition of wisdom and uh, and a really sensitivity to the underlying truths of the cosmos. That these, of course, are very hard to talk about or write about, uh, and in some ways can only be grasped um, through uh, through experience and reflection, and often from uh, avoidance of the world. Anyway, I sort of argue that in most real situations, you have to combine each of these different elements to make sense of a, of a context, a reality, a, a set of choices in a real place and time. But the key to wisdom and learning wisdom is then applying loops to all of those so that you learn to become more explicit and thinking what you think is going to happen. And then when something different happens, taking stock of what might have been right or wrong in your models and correcting them. And I guess my biggest critique of much of what claims to be wisdom out there in the world is it doesn't appear to have any of those loops of learning. It treats wisdom as an attribute, 
something which you just have almost as a possession rather than a process of constant learning and the humility in relation to the world which uses the fact that we're all going to be wrong about almost anything in our lives but uses that to to improve our, our ways of understanding our ways of uh, of acting and linking thought to action uh, and hence the notion of wisdom as a loop which can be learnt and which has parallels to Bayesian thinking in computing and the notion of so Bayesian formulae which underpin much of our computing is that you try and have a prior, you have a, a almost a guess of what's going to happen, then you look at the data and then you improve your model in the light of it. And although I'm not saying computing is the, the, the answer to all of our wisdom problems, there is a, a germ of an insight in that which I think is applicable to almost anything in our lives. So I first became... I guess, interested in the world at a slightly uh, early age, about 11 or 12, I became intensely political. I read Lenin, Marx, Che Guevara, Mao Zedong, and found myself convinced that there was much wrong in the world, that much of what I was being told in my education or my newspapers or, or my parents was basically uh, wrong and misleading and unjust and needed to be overthrown. And throughout my teenage years, one way I spent my time was as an activist, organizing marches or pickets or recruiting teenagers into trade unions and uh, helping them to, to strike against their employers. Uh, on the one hand, I've worked in governments, looking top down at the world, seeing how you could change things through policy. I was uh, head of the government strategy unit, head of policy in number 10. And I've worked in other countries with prime ministers and presidents and central teams looking down at the world, pulling levers, the really bad metaphor they sometimes use, uh, trying to hopefully solve problems of transport or energy or poverty or education. And then the other side of my life has been very much working from the bottom up, from the grassroots as a social entrepreneur, working in charities, working with uh, community projects. And I guess that iterating between the top down and the bottom up has influenced how I see the world. I came up with this rather crude metaphor of the bees and the trees, that the bees are the creative, innovative entrepreneurs who have the ideas and the passion, but don't have the power and the money. And then the trees are the big institutions, the governments, the businesses, the foundations, who definitely have the power and the money, but don't usually have the, the spark or the drive or the insight to really change things. And both need each other. The bees can't achieve lasting change, usually without some alliance with the trees, and the trees stagnate without uh, alliances. And for me, I guess what's really exciting is when you can apply quite abstract ideas and theories in the real world, and then through seeing what happens in the real world, refresh rethink all your grand theories. That's my hope, at least. So much of the writing and talk about wisdom portrays it as something very individual. It sits in the the head or the spirit of the guru sitting on top of a mountain, uh, detached from the world, offering the occasional pearl of wisdom to, to the world. But in reality, that's, 
I think, quite a misleading view of how wisdom operates. I think in almost any context, it is something collective. It depends on, you depend from almost any, anything you do on the people around you to help you. They will have lots of knowledge and experience you don't have, however uh, uh, brilliant you are. You can tell a lot of the story of progress to the extent there is progress in the world in the organization of, of, of thought and wisdom at often ever larger scales through things like the global science system, which is an extraordinary system of thought, or modern democracy, or economies. And in, in the last few decades, there's been much more detailed work on what actually are the conditions for collective wisdom at a micro scale. So in a meeting, what kinds of meetings actually tap into the full knowledge, experience, reflection of the people in there. And we've learned various combinations of diversity, but also of integration of that diversity and reflective loops can make meetings much more, much smarter than they would be otherwise. And that matters for everything from you know, Supreme Courts to parliaments to board decisions in a charity or a big company to learn some of those very specific lessons about the organization uh, of wisdom. But I think we need to go much further. And I think one of the great sort of issues of the next 10 or 20 years is how can we really reinforce collective wisdom where it's needed? Now that's obviously matters in the internet, which we depend on so much of the time and was designed with so little attention to its effects on wisdom and often has been a wisdom destroying machine more than the opposite. So I'm interested in how do you build in truth and reflection and again loops of learning into the actual design of search engines, artificial intelligence uh, and so on. And obviously it matters for global governance where we will need completely transformed systems for making decisions at a global level on biodiversity, carbon emissions, financial flows, you name it. And all of our institutions essentially were designed in the 1940s and have none of the characteristics we would, I hope, look for now. We have to be willing to throw away almost like a ladder. We've climbed up many of the old ideas about, again, wisdom as something individual, something just as an attribute, something which isn't context specific in order to get beyond that to ways of organizing thought at very large scale which can actually help us to survive and thrive. In my my sitting room is uh, a possession which I probably love the most. It's certainly my most valuable possession and the only thing I've ever inherited in my life which is a, a grand piano. My daughter has the best room in the house, which is on the top floor, under the roof, with a whole series of angular shapes made by uh, by the roof and a rocking chair, uh, which you can sit in, in this. And a rather nice thing, which I gave her, but I quite like, which was a little board on which you can paint in water. The idea is you paint with the very first thing in the morning, you wake up and you paint a single stroke or line. And then within a few minutes, it dries and disappears. But you have been brought back into, into the world and into your role as shaping that world. 
and looking out through my windows at the thick wall of greenery, which is my garden. Uh, in fact, I am completely enclosed in this house by green, at least at this time of year. My garden is full of very large trees. Uh, and behind me is an allotment. So it's green there as well, even though I'm only about 10 minutes walk from the centre of quite a large town, Luton. So one of the things that I've been struggling with a lot in the, actually in the last few months is what I'm beginning to call a post-sovereignty view of politics and, and philosophy. In a way, all of our political theories, whether it's liberalism or nationalism or socialism, they all essentially are founded in, in sovereignty. So in the old days, you know, sovereignty was something the king and the emperor had and they guarded jealously. And then people rightly fought for centuries to take part of that away, to give it to a class in the case of socialism or a nation or ultimately the individual. And our dominant philosophies now have the individual or humans as the ultimate sovereignty, consumer choice, citizen empowerment. All of our language uh, or, or of liberation is essentially about taking sovereignty back into ourselves. But I think increasingly it's clear that everything in our lives depends on other systems beyond us, the systems of the natural world, the ecosystem, climate, etc. And then the other great system is the system of knowledge and culture, which almost everything we know actually comes from others and comes from those. And I wonder what a, a philosophy or a politics would look like where we actually were humble in relation to that dependence on those systems, saw ourselves much more as part of them rather than having standing above them and having these sort of uh, sovereign rights, and also recognize our duties to those systems on which we depend for absolutely everything, for our life, our thought, our, our feelings. And I think when you do that and take that really seriously and push it to its conclusions, actually the inner and the outer become much more in alignment because as it were, the sense of a very separate sovereign ego or self is reduced in its importance. Yes, we are individuals, We live within a body which has boundaries, our brain is different from other people's brains. But I think we've completely overshot in terms of our worldview and our exaggeration of the sovereign individual and its rights, its claims, its demands. Its, uh, and, and actually in, in current politics and social media where individual voice and expression sort of trumps absolutely everything else, we see just how out of control that can become. And my hope is, that if we can do that, it's easier to achieve at least a degree of alignment of the inner and the outer. So what I just described in some ways is very abstract, but I think it can become quite specific. We're beginning to see this in relation to uh, ecosystems. A few years ago, New Zealand for the first time gave legal personhood to you know, a river and uh, a piece of, of land. Uh, and recognize its claims, almost its sovereignty relative to the sovereignty of people. And I think we're beginning to see at a global level things even like IPCC and it bears around biodiversity, which are creating global entities whose job is, as it were, the guardianship, the curation of our shared knowledge, our collective intelligence. And that, in a sense, claiming some, some power, some authority relative to the governments or the individuals or the consumers who might have been sovereign in the past. So I think there are many, many different ways the ideas I'm talking about can find an expression. 
but ultimately it has to come from a consciousness of very large numbers of people seeing what I just said as a common sense and we're definitely not there now. I'm walking over a, a small river, the Windrush River, not a bad place to think about uh, journeys and routes. This, this little river joins the Thames, eventually goes down through London and, and to the sea. And it's a prompt to think about whether there are actually any patterns of what is wisdom. Can you pin it down? Can you cultivate it? Do we have a problem that we maybe have less of it around than we had had in the past? I think I'll start with the sort of paradox of, of age. In the past, it was kind of obvious if you were old and experienced, you were wise. And the, the community kept the elders who remembered what, what you do when the, the animals you hunt move on or the weather changes or there's a conflict in the uh, community or threatened by a neighboring tribe. And then in, in the modern world, that association of age and wisdom has pretty much broken down because the experience of your parents, your grandparents, simply may not be remotely relevant to the world that you're living in. Or values change, and what they thought were wise values look completely anachronistic and dogmatic you know, 30, 50, 60 years later. And indeed, at points, like in the Chinese Cultural Revolution or the 60s in America, you know, the old were, were really mocked rather than revered. And so we have this sort of ambiguous relationship with, with wisdom now. We don't quite know what it is or how you would recognize it. And perhaps in response to this, then a lot of money has been spent researching wisdom, trying to define it, particularly in American psychology literature. And you can read lots and lots of books about that, but uh, most of them are pretty unsatisfying. And you feel don't quite get to the heart of what we're talking about, what the thing is. And the other angle has been to look at how different civilizations and cultures over the, the millennia even have thought about wisdom from ancient India and China to the Middle East and Africa. And in that research, there are some quite common patterns. What we think of as wise uh, includes an ability to understand quite complicated things. It does include some knowledge. It certainly includes ethical reasoning, the ability to see what's right and what's wrong. It involves a sort of weird mixture of non-attachment and presence. So the non-attachment is the ability to stand back and sort of see a situation for what it is uh, without ego, without uh, interest. And then the presence is the willingness then to dive back and be part of the problem and part of the solution commit with all your humanity and all, all your love. There's a strange loop that you can only really know what is wise in the long run, once you see what actually happens. That's when you find out whether the wise advice was really foolish or not. If you're dealing with a really difficult, complicated, messy, tangled situation, you have to sort of go outwards and try and see it from many different perspectives, uh, many different angles. But then you have to come back because the decision you end up making has to be much simpler than the factors which go into making that decision. Uh, and that's where wisdom and action are kind of looped together as well. To some extent, a lot of it, I think, is about 
the experience of thinking about complicated problems, which could be anything from how does a tree grow, how does a civil war end, <laughs> uh, what's the dynamics of a family, learning that habit of seeing things in multiple dimensions, but also trying to integrate your judgment. And it's this integrative judgment which seems to be key to wisdom, not just luxuriating in a million different perspectives. And I think that is something children can learn through being involved in real-life complicated projects and being helped to reflect on what they've learnt about them. It's interesting to me that we rely on lots of types of committee to be wise. To the extent we have organisations which are wise, it's not just because they've got smart people in them. There's a sort of division of labour there. They're made more wise because perhaps there's a free media outside looking at what they're doing, criticising them. Uh, there may be whistleblowers who keep them honest and make sure that they don't uh, go against their deeper ethics. And you can go on. There's all these different roles which together add up to a wiser kind of organization. And I think we can apply the same thing to whole systems. You know, a transport system, an energy system, a schooling system. What would make it wise? Well, it's going to be, again, this combination of factors which reinforce each other. And then there's the last thing I'll share is, for me, a really interesting uh, and sort of dilemma of wisdom, which is a kind of wisdom which can be a little bit too elderly, a little bit too flat, a little bit too prudent. And I think wisdom is often in tension with imagination. And I think ever since the Romantics, there's been this idea that to live life to the full is about taking leaps, taking risks doing things which are perhaps imprudent. There's a quote from William Blake where he says, you know, if the fool pursues his folly, ultimately it becomes wisdom. And I think we all need in any, again, organization, a society, our own lives, a willingness sometimes to play the fool, to be deliberately unwise, to take risks, and to have those leaps of madness, imagination, beauty, creativity, which also make the world a wonderful place. So paradoxically, a wiser world is also wise about the limits of its wisdom and its need for folly every now and again. I'm sitting in a shed at the bottom of my garden. You can hear the wind in the trees outside. The whole ground is covered in small blossoms. I'm completely surrounded by the green of the leaves of large trees and the rather wild bottom half uh, of my garden, which is completely unkempt. And at this time of year, it just goes crazy with growth of all kinds. And this is a, a place I like to come. Uh, it has no phone, no electricity, a little bit cocooned. I've been pretty lucky in my life in having had many, I think many moments of joy and bliss and tranquility, I think. I've been very lucky. At the age of 17, I was very fortunate to get to know a man called Nyanaponikatera. He was a Sri Lankan Buddhist, well, he was originally German, went to Sri Lanka and developed many of the ideas of mindfulness and meditation and took me in and took me to a monastery. And I think the practices there of bare awareness, as they were called, 
was probably the first time I really experienced a truly profound kind of bliss, a true escape perhaps from illusions of self and attachment and all that stuff. And the sense of being part of things so much bigger than us. And I was never a very good monk and I've probably always been trying to recapture something of that clarity, that purity, that distancing in a way. <laughs>